0: The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb. If you would please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Uh, it's page 928 in the Red Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you. And it's page 928. <laughs> if you don't own a Bible, that is a Bible for you to keep. Uh, we love to give away Bibles here at Jacobswell Church, so please take it with you as a gift from us, Just to remind you of the context of the passage, uh, Paul is now on his third missionary journey. Uh, he has come to the city of Ephesus and has been proclaiming the gospel and baptizing new believers and speaking boldly and, and reasoning with people and trying to persuade them about the kingdom of God for over two years. And that's when we come to today's passage. So let's read together Acts chapter 19, verse 11 through 20. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, in fear "...fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver." So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power. We thank you, God, that you are at work inside of us, that you are at work in this world restoring broken things. Pray, God, that we would would cling to your power more this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever, or do you remember your first experience riding a 10-speed bike? I remember mine because it was actually a pretty traumatic experience. Uh, it was a summer day. My my older brothers and sisters must have been gone, and one of them left out their 10-speed bike, and so I somehow crawled over the crossbar and, and lifted myself up on the seat and started pedaling towards the end of my driveway. And as I was petting paddling towards the end of my driveway, I could either turn left and go up the hill that we lived on or right and go down the hill we lived on. You see, the street we lived on was called Bitterfield and Bitterfield was a long, big hill as much of Missouri is. If you can imagine the hill you drive up to go to the top of Triangle where you go down that tubing hill, that's about the pitch it was at, but probably four times longer than that. And so I lift halfway up this hill and I I take the 10-speed out of the driveway and I start going down the hill and I'm noticing this bike goes a lot faster than my bike, right? And I'm like, this is really cool. This is kind of a milestone in my life. I'm not like my brothers and my sisters who can ride these big 10-speed bikes. Well, I'm headed down the hill. Things are going great. It's fun. It's exciting. But then it starts to get a little too fast. And so I decide, all right, I need to slow this bike down. And so I start spinning my pedals backwards to brake. You've probably seen where the story's going, aren't you? So I'm spinning and spinning and spinning. I'm absolutely powerless to slow down my bike because I have no idea about handbrakes. Like, I, I, I have no idea what they are. I've never, I've never been told what they are. I, I didn't know. And so I'm spinning my, my pedals backwards trying to brake, zooming down this hill completely out of control, completely powerless to slow the bike down, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Now, that would be enough of the story to illustrate what I'm getting at, but I know you'll ask me what happened, so let me tell you what happened. I get towards the bottom of the hill, and my, my plan is to veer off into the grass and maybe see if the grass will slow down my bike. Well, I, I veer off, and I hit the curb, and I go flying through the air, and I land on the grass and skid across this guy's lawn. And it was awesome. I mean, it was so much fun. I would, I I didn't do it again, but it was awesome. But in the midst of zooming down that hill out of control and completely powerless, it was terrifying. Do you know what it's like to feel powerless? Like life is zooming by, you're out of control, and you have no power to stop what's going on. Maybe you have felt powerless over sickness or disease or chronic pain in your life in which you have gone to the doctor to see if they can heal and nothing seems to happen. Maybe you have felt powerless over the wickedness and evil of this world, either personally something that's been done to you or to someone you love, or maybe you just turn on the news and you see there's these trigger-happy sinners that have access to atomic bombs, and you're like, I feel powerless. Or to get a little more personal, Do you feel powerless against sin in your own life, secret sinful practices, or secret sinful attitudes, or non-secret but sinful attitudes? Do you feel powerless, like these things have mastered your heart and you can do nothing about it? Well, today we will be reminded that the reason we feel powerless in these situations... It's because we are. (laughs) It's not a big secret. You feel powerless because you are powerless in these situations. Don't get me wrong. We can fight against sickness and we can fight against evil and we can fight against sin and we can do that to a limited capacity, but it's not going away, is it? We still have doctors. We still have police officers. We still have struggles with sin because of the power of it and our powerlessness to overcome it. But just because we are powerless, it does not mean that we are hopeless. Because in our powerlessness, we have a great hope in a more potent power available to us. And the power of a Trinitarian God. And so today we are going to see the power of God over things that we are powerless over, but are actually things that are powerful over us. The first on display for us today is God's potent power over sickness. Look at verse 11 and 12 with me again. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came down on them. The healing that takes place in verse 11 through the hands of Paul has become somewhat uh, understandable, ordinary to us. We've seen this through the book of Acts, that the apostles lay their hands on people and they are healed. But then we get to verse 12, and it seems a bit odd. It seems a very a bit bizarre. I don't remember anywhere in, in the Bible other than I think of the time of Jesus, how they touched his cloak and they were healed. About, but I don't think of another time in which a fabric carried some healing power in it. But here we have handkerchiefs. What are handkerchiefs used for? They're used to blow your nose. They're used to wipe the sweat off your head. Hopefully not in the same use. But that's what they're used for. Or an apron. An apron is used to protect your clothes or your body while you're working. And so these cloths would touch Paul's skin. And the people would take them away to loved ones. And they would be healed. Now I think this verse can be hijacked out of context and used for a lot of superstition. So I want to spend a little bit of time on this and ask the question, what exactly is going on here with these healings? With these healings from Paul, but also the the handkerchiefs and the aprons. And as we seek to understand what is happening through these miraculous healings, we have to consider the context of what's going on here. You see, verse 11 and 12 may be the first verses of today's passage. But they come right after verses 8, 9, and 10. And that's very important. You see, Paul's ministry did not start with these miracles, or these miracles were not the only part of their ministry. We see in verse 8, it says that Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And then later on in verse 9, it says, Paul was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents... Of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so Paul's primary ministry was to proclaim the word of the Lord, to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Christ. And his secondary ministry, his supportive ministry, are these miracles that came through Paul. I think the order of this is extremely significant, and we understand this throughout the entire New Testament. You see, as you look through the Gospels and as you look through Acts, There's a word that's commonly substituted for the word miracle. And the word that's commonly substituted for the word miracle is the word sign. Matter of fact, so they use these words interchangeably, miracles and signs. In John 2.23, we read read that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs or miracles that he was doing. Acts 2.43, the church is, is growing and exploding And it says, all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs or miracles were being done through the apostles. And so what does it mean that miracles are signs? What does that mean, that a miracle is a sign? Well, think of any sign, right? If you're driving to the Wisconsin Dells to go to a water park, and you see a sign with your hotel on that that sign, you don't pull the minivan over and camp out below that sign. That would be a horrible vacation, right? But you know that sign points to something better, right? The sign points to a greater reality, right? If you go out here and you see that restroom sign, don't stop at the sign. Go to the reality, please. Please. For Gordon's sake. But the sign isn't the end. The sign points to a greater reality. So what is the greater reality that these signs of miracles are pointing to? Well, you see these signs, these miracles are testimonies of God's power. Not only over sickness, but to heal our relationship with him. It is God's testimony of God's power over not over sickness but but that God is on our side. It is a testimony that God is going to make all things right again. It is a testimony as Paul is preaching in verse 8 that the kingdom of God has begun. And God is in the process of redeeming and restoring all things as far as the curse is found. You see miracles were signs that would accompany the proclamation of the gospel for the purpose of validating the amazing, miraculous message of the gospel. Now, what about these handkerchiefs and aprons? This is, this is a twist on what we've seen. Well, again, if you look at verse 9, it says that Paul was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, that's a large piece of property, All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. And so here's what I think is going on. As people are coming to Ephesus to do business or to do trade, they're hearing Paul preach, they're seeing the signs validating his gospel message, people are being healed, people are trusting in Jesus Christ, but there are more people in Asia than those who come to Ephesus, especially the sick and the ill who cannot make that travel, who cannot make that journey. And so what they do is they take the aprons and the handkerchiefs, and they take it back to the, to the sick. They take it back to those who are, who are unhealthy. And they bring with it not just the healing power of Jesus to heal them physically, but to heal them spiritually. And so they come back with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they say, who's this guy Jesus? I've never heard of him. And then they see healing power, signs that this gospel message is true for them. And so just as the healing, physical healings, validated Paul's message of the gospel in Ephesus, the healing that went through these handkerchiefs and through these aprons validated the gospel message to those who these new believers were going to. Now as we look at verse 11 and 12, and the healing done through these through Paul and these fabrics, there are, there are two misconceptions that can happen, and I quickly want to address them because, again, I don't want these to be hijacked and used for superstition. The first misconception is that there were magical powers in Paul or in the sweat of Paul or in these rags. But to think that would be to skip verse 11. I mean, verse 11 is crystal clear. It says, and who? Who? God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. In other words, the power was not in Paul or in these fabrics. They were vessels for the power of God to be displayed. And so it is not in the person of Paul or in these fabrics that the power resides or originates, but it is in God. The second misconception is that miracles are ordinary Again, look at verse 11. It says, and God was doing extraordinary or extraordinary, right? Miracles by the hands of Paul. Extraordinary means that it is extraordinary, right? It means that it's not ordinary. It's not commonplace. It's not everyday occurrence. It's unusual. It's surprising. It's uncommon. I think it's important to see that because there is a theology that, that kind of permeates the church that says, hey, if you just have enough faith, if you just believe enough, you will be healed, right? That you'll be healed. The reason you are still sick is because you don't have enough faith, which I think is so funny because Paul, who's through his hands healed many people, also wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In the 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, now they aren't sure what this thorn in the flesh is. They, they think it may be a physical ailment like malaria or poor eyesight or something like that. But he goes on and says, three times, three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And then hear this very clear. He says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, God displays his power miraculously through healing and suffering, but he also displays it through answering our prayers in ways that we would not ask. Sometimes God displays his power through miracles of healing physically, but more often times he displays it through the miracle of a heart that has a peace that surpasses all understanding even in the midst of physical suffering. Now this does not mean that we should not Pray for miraculous healing. We are called and told to do so. There are some even here in this congregation that could testify to the miraculous healing of God. It's true. It happens. But the point is, God is not obligated to do these things. They are uncommon. They are not everyday. They are extraordinary. And so we should pray. But we should pray trusting that the Lord is good and that he will make his power seen either through healing our physical body on this earth or through giving us the power to rejoice in him through it. A few years ago, I received in the mail a prayer rug. It sounds more fancy than the actual was. It was this large sheet of paper, uh, double the size of 8 and a half by 11, so whatever that is, I can't do math too quick. But there's this, there was this prayer rug, and it was a big piece of paper, and it was in color, so it must have cost at least 10 cents, and what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to put the prayer rug on the ground, and you're supposed to kneel on it, and you're to pray, and if you prayed with the right amount of faith, then God would answer it. And of course, what else was very important to this prayer rug is that you sent it on to another person, and then if you were prompted by God, send a little bit of a donation to the ministry that sent it to you, right? And so I get this prayer rug, and I wish I would have kept it for sermon illustration purposes, but I threw it around, threw it away, because I knew it was trash. See, here's the purpose with the prayer rug, which honestly, I think, deceives so many people. The difference between that prayer rug and what's happening here in Acts 19.12 is that this did not testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greater miracle of the coming of the kingdom of God. It claimed to have healing power in and of itself, acknowledging that healing po- not acknowledging that healing power only comes from God. It made an extraordinary thing of miracle seem very ordinary and commonplace if you just had enough faith. And most of all, it did not point us to the hope of heaven. You see, the kingdom of God, which Paul was preaching in Ephesus, had begun with Christ's first coming, but it would be complete with his second coming. You see, while physical healing is extraordinary here on earth, it is commonplace in heaven. Revelations 21, when we read about the new heavens and the new earth, we read that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne will say, Behold, I am making all things new. Friends, if you are sick or a loved one is sick, pray for miracles. Pray for healing on this earth. But know with certainty That there will be complete healing in heaven for all who trust in Jesus Christ. Pray knowing that there is a greater miracle that God wants us to be aware of. Not, Not a miracle of physical healing, but the miracle of God reconciling sinners to himself. The forgiveness of sins on our behalf. The extraordinary healings on this earth will be ordinary in heaven. The healing here will be temporary, but there it will be eternal. These physical healings were a testimony of the kingdom of God that has begun with Christ's first coming, but will be completed at his second coming. And so we should trust and know that the Lord is a potent power over sickness, but he's also a potent power over Satan. Let's look at verse 13. It says, In some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, undertook to involve the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of Jewish high priests named Sceva were doing this. Seven sons of Sceva. Kind of has a good ring to it, doesn't it? Sounds like a, a Vegas show or a traveling show. You know, coming to the rest or the seven sons of Sceva, buy your tickets now. Sounds like a sideshow. And to be honest, that's, that's kind of what it was. They were itinerant. They were traveling, going around, deceiving people, tricking people out of their money, saying, pay us and we will heal you. We will cast out demons. And because they're sons of a Jewish high priest, people probably thought their prayers meant more, just like they, people do with pastors. By the way, my prayers don't count for more, just so you know. But people thought they had this power, but they were scam artists. There's still sons of Sceva today that say, we will heal you, send us your money, we will heal you, send us your money. Just turn on the TV, you'll see them. But in this passage, these Jewish exorcists, which I've never heard of before, sounds fun. Again, a good band name, the Jewish exorcist. But the Jewish exorcists encounter a man with an evil spirit, and they have heard about how Jesus has cast out evil spirits. It's at the the end of verse 12 up there, or verse 10, I think it is. That, that Jesus casts out, that, that Paul casts out evil spirits through the power of God. And so they think, you know what, we will, we'll use this for our own advantage. We'll claim the name of Jesus in order to turn a prophet. And it's so interesting there in verse 13, they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. <laughs> Not the one that that we proclaim, not the one that we trust in, not the one that is our Lord and Savior, but the one that Paul proclaims. They wanted to use the name of Jesus simply for personal gain and not for his glory. And so in verse 15, we read this wonderful question. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Who are you? I think of the song. Is it from the Who? Who are you? Who, 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 who. Right. That's the only words I know to that song. Sounds like a cuckoo clock, I know, but that's just when I sing it. But that's what this evil spirit is saying. The famous sons of Sceva. Who are you? I. Sorry, doesn't ring a bell. Never heard of you. I mean, it's so interesting the demon's awareness of Jesus and Paul. They say, Jesus, I know. It's the Greek word, gnoskos, which means an intimate knowing. And then it says, Paul, I recognize, a different Greek word, epistemi, which is a lesser knowing, kind of being acquainted with. And so the demon's basically saying, you know, Jesus I know, Paul I know of, but who are you, great sons of Sceva? Why 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 did the evil spirit not know them? Well, it's because they weren't even on hell's radar. See, Jesus is the top threat to hell. He is public enemy number one. The demons know all about Jesus. In fact, they know more theology than we do. As you read throughout the Gospel, Mark, one of the really interesting things is see who claims Jesus to be the Son of God. And until the very end, the only, the only ones that claim Jesus to be the Son of God is the narrator and the demons. Those are the people who say he's the Son of God. Mark 3.11 says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. They knew it. They knew who he was. Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. But who are you? Let me ask a strange question that a pastor may have never asked you before. Does hell know your name? Do the demons know your name? name? Are they concerned that you are a servant of the Most High God, of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and that you are fighting a battle against their schemes to steal glory from God? Do they know you? Are they attacking you? Are they unhappy with you? Or do they look at you and say, sorry, never heard of you. Are you famous in this world? but worthless in the spiritual world. Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. What an awesome sight this would have been. How humiliating and comical. The seven sons of Sceva come in with their great pride. They are the Jewish exorcists. Seven of them come in facing just one single tiny little demon. And who wins? Not the seven. The one demon literally beats the clothes off of them. That's a strong beating. If you get in a fight and your clothes are beaten off of you, you lost, just so you know. The demon beats the clothes off of them. This would have been so humiliating, especially in a Jewish context in which modesty was so much appreciated. They run away naked, totally humiliated. Verse 17, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. This evil spirit put such a beat down on these quote, spiritual authorities, these Jewish professional exorcists, that the people were afraid of the evil spirits because they saw their own powerlessness. In fact, they saw the powerlessness of seven men against the evil spirit. But more importantly, they also feared the Lord Jesus because they knew they were powerless without him. Do you see that? They, they, They feared the demons because they knew that they were not powerful over them. And they feared Jesus with reverence because they knew they were powerless without him. And so in their hearts, it says that they extolled Jesus, which means they they magnified him. They exalted him. They held him in high honor. They celebrated him. They glorified him. You know, what we are reminded of in this passage is the hierarchy of power between man and Satan and Jesus. Jesus. What we learn is that the demons have greater power than one man. They have greater power than seven men. But it's also very clear, especially at the end of verse 12, that Christ has power over all demons and all evil spirits. In Matthew 8, we read about how Jesus encounters two demon-possessed men. And it says that they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. And they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They know who he is. Have you come to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged them, begged him. They, they pleaded with him. They, they groveled, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into those pigs. And so Jesus said, go. And they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the water. Just as powerless as we are against evil spirits, evil spirits are even more so powerless against Jesus. You know, I know we have this temptation, probably more so even in a church like ours than others, to de-demonize the world. To pretend that there are no evil spirits, that that was just for uneducated people a long time ago. But Paul warns us in Ephesians 6, he says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then 1 Peter 5 says, Be watchful, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. My family recently watched the movie, Pete's Dragon. And in the movie, Pete is abandoned in the woods because of a tragic car accident. And he is, he's, he's small and he's frail, and certainly he does not have a, uh, an optimistic outlook. But then Elliot, this dragon, this, this monstrous, awesome, scary, but also friendly dragon takes Pete under his wing, both literally and figuratively, and Pete starts to grow up. And there's this one scene near the beginning of the movie where, where Pete is down by the water and this grizzly bear comes out. And the grizzly bear stands up, eight, ten feet tall. and goes, ah! And Pete looks at him and you're thinking, man, Pete Pete's going to get it, right? Pete's an appetizer, if that. But Pete looks at the bear and he goes, ah! And then, and then Elliot the dragon peeks his head out from the woods. And the bear turns and runs away, whimpering. Friends, according to Scripture, Satan is real. Evil spirits are real. And we are no match for them. We are powerless against them. But just as they are power, we are powerless against them, they are even more powerless than the God who is on our side. The demonic world is far more powerful than you. But we need not fear because... There is one who is more potently powerful than them that is with us and in us and working for us. The Lord has a potent power over sickness and disease. He has a potent power over Satan and evil spirits. And he has a potent power over sin. Verse 17. Again, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And I love this. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What we read in this passage is an act of public repentance. People are so overwhelmed by the power and the glory of Christ that they confess and divulge their sin publicly, and then they take their magic book arts, book magical arts, something, you know what I'm saying, they take those books full of magical arts, there we go, and they take them, and they burn them, and we read here that they're worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And why does it mention this? Because in today's terminology, that would be $6 million worth of books they burn. This is a massive declaration of faith. These books were the substance of their hope for power. Power over sickness, power over disease, power over evil spirits, power over the brokenness of this world. And yet they took all of it. They confessed their sin. They burned these books in the sight of all as a public declaration of faith, that they are putting their trust and faith and hope in the power of Christ alone. Now I want you to notice here, their strategies actually don't really have a strategy. I want you to notice here why they repent of their secret sins, why they burn these wicked books. And I think this is important for us to see. They didn't just merely say, you know what, this is sin. It's bad. I should try harder and get rid of it. Rather, there was something that purged the sin out of them. Verse 17 again, it says, And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And I think this not only means in the community around, but also in their hearts. You see, you can't merely just kick sin out of your heart, because if you kick sin out of your heart, the vacuum is going to be filled by another sin. You can't kick sin out of your heart. You have to replace the sin in your heart. And as the fear of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus and the prevailing might and love of Jesus expands in your heart, it will purge the sin out. At our house, we have an outdoor sprinkler system. It's new to me. It's really cool. It works nice. But, But when you get to winter, you have to purge the water out of there. And so that doesn't freeze and break all the lines. And the way that you do it is you don't just simply ask the water to get out, or, nor do you try to suck the water out. But what you do is there's actually this, this pipe that comes out of the ground and you stick an air compressor in there and you blow air in there so that as the lines fill with the air, it will purge the water out of the system. Friends, if you want victory over sin, can I encourage you not to simply seek to get rid of sin But purge your sin by filling your heart with the love and glory and power and magnitude of Jesus Christ. By exalting Jesus, celebrating Jesus, glorifying Jesus, enjoying Jesus. Don't try to overcome sin by simply focusing on sin. Overcome sin by focusing on and surrendering yourself more to the love of Jesus and let him Purge the sin from your hearts. You know, I'm guessing there are not many of you here that practice the magic arts. But how many of you here have unconfessed sin before God? Enslaved to the darkness of secret sin. And you have convinced yourself, I am powerless against it. I have tried time and time and time and time again. And I simply cannot eradicate sin from my heart or from my life. I've given it my best shot and there is nothing I can do. And you say, I am powerless. But friends, when you know you are powerless, that is the best spot to be because then you will look to another power. You will look to the power of one who is more potent than you. You will look to the power of God who lives in you through his Holy Spirit. You see, Scripture tells us in Galatians 5, it says, walk by the Spirit. It doesn't say try harder. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the power of God in your life. And you will not gratify the cravings, the sinful desires of the flesh. It is not our power that conquers sin, but it is the power of God within us. And so what is it that is mastering your life? Is it a sinful attitude or a sinful addiction? Don't keep it in secret. Confess it to a brother or sister in the Lord, confess it to God and let the power and love of God fill your heart to purge it from you. Let me end with this. About two weeks ago, Trish and I decided to replace the field stone around our front trees because it was kind of becoming overgrown and we decided to buy those curved scallop you know what I'm talking about, and so I went to the store and I bought around 18 or 19 of those, whatever I could fit on the cart, and I put them in the back of my truck. I brought them home and I pulled out my yard cart, yard wagon, whatever it is. It looks like a wagon, but it's for for yard stuff. And so I take out these concrete scallops and I put them in this yard cart, and there's 20 of them in there, and it's it's very very heavy. And one of my children comes out to me, one of my smaller children, and says, "I want to pull the cart." I want to pull the cart. I'm like, it's too heavy. You can't pull it, right? You're You're not powerful enough to do it. But they persist, right? I want to pull the cart. I want to pull the cart. I want to pull the cart. So I'm like, fine, pull the cart. So they grab the handle and they pull it. Nothing happens. So then they grab with two hands and put their weight and start pulling, pulling, pulling. Doesn't even move an inch, and then they do probably the most, the smartest thing they did all day. They give up. And they say, Dad, you pull it. What are you trying to pull in your life? What weight are you pulling around, trying to handle by your own power, but unable to do it? 2 Corinthians 4, 6-9 says, For God... Who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Fragile, powerless jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Friends, where are you saying to God, I want to pull the weight. I want to pull the weight. I want to pull the weight. And it's not budging one inch. Friends, if we were able to have power over these things, Christ would not have had to come. But Christ did come and he came in power. Power over sickness and disease. Power over over Satan and sin and death. Dying upon the cross for us and raising to new life to give us newness of life. And then before going into heaven, he says, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on, on high. The power we need is the power he gives us through the Holy Spirit. Church, we are powerless, powerless to pull the weight of our sickness and disease. We are powerless to pull the weight of our wickedness and evil. We are powerless to pull the weight of our sin and shame. And so let me offer this simple solution. Quit. Let God pull the weight. This is not easy work. It is not slothful work, but it is the right work. The sooner we acknowledge our powerlessness in these areas, the sooner we can let God display in us his surpassing potent power over all things. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are a people who have a power struggle attitude towards life. We want to handle things on our own and in our own power, and we try to pull the cart, but it doesn't budge an inch, and we do not learn, Lord, We do not learn. We continue to pull in our own strength and our own power. God, I pray for those here today who are convicted by your word, God, in their battle against whatever it might be, Lord. Pray that they would surrender to you, Lord God, that they would avail themselves to your power so that in their weakness, your power may be manifested in them, Lord God. Lord, I pray as we turn to the table and we're reminded of your great grace to us in Christ Jesus, and in his power over Satan, sin, and death, Lord, that we'd once again be renewed and reminded, Lord. Lord, forgive us for for thinking that, that you have power over sickness and power over Satan, but forget that you have power over our sin, Lord. Help us to trust in your power this morning. Avail ourselves to your power, even in the taking of these elements, God. Thank you for the nourishment they give to weak people, powerless people, as you fill us with your power. In Christ's name, amen. As Christ approaches the cross, he sits with the disciples to celebrate the Passover meal, a demonstration of the power of God to deliver his people out of Egypt because the battle belonged to the Lord. And he sits with them. He says, take, eat, this is my body given for you. And he said, drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you're here today and you feel powerless, praise God, because you are. But look to the power, the potent power of a Trinitarian almighty God who is for you. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, please do not take this, because even in the book of Corinthians, it warns us that there is some power in this. That if you take in an unworthy manner, some are, have gotten sick and died from taking in an unworthy manner. So if you come today, come powerless, come repentant, come trusting in Christ as your Savior. This is for you to nourish you and to remind you of the power of God within you. But if that's not you, we ask that you wait until that day when you can take it in genuine faith in the wonder-working power of Jesus Christ. We we'll have stations set up throughout the sanctuary. Please go and take the elements. Bring them back to your seat and we'll take together as one body, the body of Christ.